0: This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Well, it's a privilege for me to um, be able to preach to you. And I have to admit that I'm like Max, I can't help but preach and uh, the Word is burning in me and it's been very helpful to have Doug preaching to us and then Stephen. I also want to thank you for loving us. Um, Right before this session I asked a certain young man if he would go get me coffee because I knew if I came in to get coffee I wouldn't get out. When he came in and brought me the coffee I said I hope you don't mind me asking to do that for you and he said well I did it first, and when you think about all the ways that you serve your elders, the older women of the church, you serve the officers of your home church, all the ways that we do serve each other, we don't take this for granted at all. And so thank you for your love. Um, It's evident as, as we preach to you in your faces, it helps us preach. Um, You can think this is flattery, but one of the things that... I grew up, as a matter of fact, I hadn't thought of this, but I don't know how many years ago it was now, but Doug's dad and my dad, I remember it distinctly. I don't remember Doug, but I remember being at a conference, and Doug and I, I think, both grew up going to conferences where our dad spoke. And the thing that really uh, concerns me is the displacement of preaching by speaking. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so a conference is very different from a revival. I almost want to reclaim the language of revivals. Because I have this fantasy that once again, Jonathan Edwards will go around the country preaching to us. And so the reason we hold this conference is not because we want to hawk all our wares to you, although sometimes being a a church of young families Eh, we, sometimes we get pretty desperate financially. But um, the reason is that it simply is not enough to have the Lord's Day each week. There need to be pilgrimages. When you look at how many of the Psalms are Psalms of Ascent, when you think of what they did on the way to and from Jerusalem, Jesus with his parents, right? What did they do? Well, it's what we did in the car on our way out to Bear Trap Ranch and uh, Spring Canyon Lodge, which is in the car, we would sing. And what did we sing? Not 99 bottles of beer on the wall. You know, we sang hymns. And so if you think about the cycles of life and you think about how you have a weekly cycle, there should be an annual cycle. Every year, there need to be times we set apart for fellowship, for strengthening one another as Christians. And it's like pulling teeth. Well, what speakers are you going to have? What food are you going to have? What are you going to have for the children? And, and by the way, will my ego get stroked? Can I get FaceTime with Nancy? That's a joke. All right. So I want you to encourage you to realize this is not abnormal in the history of God's covenant people. God's people have always taken slots of time every year and set it aside for pilgrimage. And that's what this is. This is an extended period of time where we strengthen each other in our faith. And we need that. Why? Well, because our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers. So now let's pray and ask God to feed us this this last time. Father, you are the great God above all gods, and you have called us. You have given us faith and repentance, and so we have hope in Jesus Christ. Father, we have been exhorted about this present darkness that we live in, that it actually is light, the light of Jesus Christ. And we pray now as we think again about the nature of our witness in this world, that you will keep us from fear. And also, Father, would you please keep us from being Pollyannas? Would you help us to see clearly the nature of the conflict and to gird up our loins May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The nation's rage was uh, our first sermon from Doug, and then Stephen called us to honor the king, both by submitting to him and by submitting to God. Then uh, Pastor Wilson spoke to us about what it is to be salt and light and called us to um, to forswear, to have nothing to do with envy. If you uh, want to read a book that has excellent sections, where when you get done reading them, you'll never... Uh, you'll never trivialize envy again. Read uh, Herb Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction. You have absolutely no idea how central to our national life as a country envy is. And it's a very, very helpful book. And my job this afternoon is to talk about the weapons of our warfare. And the minute I say that, you know, the weapons of our warfare are what? Well, William Gennaro wrote this long, long book about it. You know that it lists the weapons, but essentially the weapons of our warfare are not, they're not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're spiritual, right? And so Doug talked about the pursuit of what uh, what is beautiful, what is true, what is good, about the need to uh, witness for the Lord by uh, giving ourselves to the things that are, that are beautiful, to the things that, that uh, awaken our hearts to God's glory. But I want to I warn you about something. When you listen to Doug talk about envy, you forget, maybe just a little, that envy is what? What does Shakespeare call envy in, in a couple of his plays? He calls him the green-eyed monster. Don't ever, ever think that envy is a small and almost innocuous thing. There is nothing that an envious man won't do, that an envious woman won't do. And so let's look a little bit at this conflict that, that The envy of the wicked will place us in the middle of. Now we're opening up scripture's teaching on the church's mission to bring the authority and rule of God into this dark world. The work is difficult and often frightening because the rage of the nations is real. And that rage is focused precisely against our Lord Jesus Christ and we live in him. You know, I remember when... You began to confess faith, Anthony, and you wanted to do a song. And you wanted the song to be about Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden all hell broke loose against you and your band. Why? This world hates the rule of God. Don't make any mistake about it. And so it is a scary thing to turn our allegiance to Jesus Christ, and it is a scary thing to call the world To submit to his authority. Because this world is intent on casting aside his rule, his bonds, his cords. And being in Christ, we live among and with unbelievers, and every single unbeliever is a slave of Satan. It's hard to look that in the face, but it's true. Unbelievers, there are only two options, to be a slave of Satan, to be a slave of God. All right? Every unbeliever is a slave of Satan who's intent on breaking asunder the bonds of God's authority. This is why the new boss, as Doug said, is always the same as the old boss. We tip our hat to the new revolution and then realize immediately it's the same old revolution that's described in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. So it is Jesus Christ, God's anointed, that kings and rulers have taken their stand against. He is the one they rage against He is the one they hate. He is the one on a hill at the crossroads that they murdered. But rebellion against God's Son is always rebellion against God the Father Almighty. All right? And God will not tolerate the rebellion. In fact, with the it is finished of Good Friday, the rebellion is over and the mop-up operation is well underway. And Jesus' great commission contains the general orders for that operation. He says, Jesus came up to them, this is in Matthew 28, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And so it begins with this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. Now let's let's be honest here. It's never a fun thing to be the delegate of authority. Right? You name me any place in the home, in the church, or in society where it's just sweet, you know, a prosecutor. <laughs> you know, did you enjoy exercising the authority of the office of prosecutor or the, of the people? You think of the authority of the budget director. You think of the authority of a school teacher. You think of the authority of the session. The session discusses a particular sin in a particular family, and and then they send an elder as a delegate of their authority. And so let's be honest, the Great Commission is not a real sweet thing. If Jesus starts it by saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore, it's like, yikes. Come on, people, think about it. None of us want to go to an unbeliever in this world and explain, no matter how tactfully, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this is what we start with, with the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And so it is this authority, it is the authority of God's anointed one that the world is in rebellion against. And we are to oppose that rebellion by being salt and light. We're to oppose that rebellion by working to bring in the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord commands us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to submit to his authority. And that's what it means to obey every one of his commands. And wonderfully, our Lord promises to be with us in this battle protecting us even to the end of the age. So we are soldiers of Christ. Now here, nobody's going to question that declaration, partly because isn't there some hymn that has the title Soldiers of Jesus Wake Up? Or uh, Marines of Christ Arise? Some of you don't even know the hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise. And soldiers fight in a war, don't they? So now, what is the nature of this conflict? Well, that's the subject of this last session. And I'd like you to turn with me to two texts of Scripture that describe the hostilities to us and that teach us how to survive. And yes, you heard that one right. Our survival is at stake. You know, how have we ever gotten to the point where the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints has been turned into something that keeps her from being any danger ever in the church and in the pulpit. Our survival is at stake. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired words here like breastplate and shield and sword. He, the Holy Spirit, was not being melodramatic. So our first text is in 2 Corinthians and our second in Ephesians 6. Now, I know that the 2 Corinthians text is lesser known than the Ephesians text. And I have a theory about why that is so. And I think it's because the context for the 2 Corinthians text is the Corinth uh, super-apostles who are attacking the Apostle Paul And this description of the warfare of the Christian comes in the middle of Paul's self defense. He's speaking of the conflict that he is at the center of. Actually, though not Paul, but his master. And I want, in this connection, before we read these passages, to hammer home a truth that too few Christians know or understand about the nature of our conflict. In our age, conflict is shameful. If people are attacking you, it is your fault. It is your fault. As Alan Bloom said in the closing of the American Mind, the only value left in America is Rodney King's Can't We All Get Along? That's all that's left in America. And since everyone purportedly wants to get along with us, if we're not getting along, it's our fault. It's my fault. Well, the Christian is perfectly opposed to the spirit of our age then because the Christian works toward everyone getting along with God in Christ Jesus. The Christian knows there will be no getting along between man and God until man kisses the son and man refuses to kiss the son. Meanwhile, though, all this talk and pressure about all of us just getting along with each other is a cobweb that we have a great deal of trouble escaping. Whichever way we turn, we find it gripping us tightly. How can we get loose? And so, quite naturally, we settle into the truce, which is really no truce at all, but victory for the kingdoms and rulers, the principalities and powers of this world. And we salve our bad consciences telling ourselves that we found the sweet spot halfway between God and man, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Right? So if I were to ask you if there's any conflict in your life because of your witness to Jesus Christ, you'd have to do some mental gymnastics to figure out how to respond to Pastor Bailey. You know, what is he talking about? Oh yeah, that's Pastor Bailey and he's obnoxious and he thinks other people should be obnoxious too and so, well yeah, I did have a little bit of tension with my hairdresser last week. Right? This has nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. My wife regularly says to me, it's not about you, Tim. She doesn't say Tim you know what I'm saying. And so, you and I want to be liked. I know, it's a dirty secret, but let's fess up. We want to be liked. We want to be respected in the church. We want to be a comfortable presence at work, in our neighborhoods, and at family reunions. And so what do we do? We render ourselves innocuous. This is what it means for Christians to go along with all this getting along stuff. And thus it is that in our age, what? Only the humble fight. Okay? Because the minute you engage in the conflict, you are dead to your reputation. You cannot have a good reputation and be faithful to the battle that Christ has put you in by virtue of being a Christian. Okay, the first. The cross you have to take up is the cross of your reputation, okay? Your reputation with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your parents, with your grandchildren, with the people in your neighborhood, with the people in the church. That's the first cross. A man who fights has died to his reputation, particularly today. And if you think about it, that's what we watch the Apostle Paul doing throughout the New Testament. He never stops dying to his reputation. Even when he defends his reputation, what does he say? He says, Oh, 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 I must be be a complete idiot to speak like this. Remember that? This is so personal. He's just like, Oh, all right, do I have to say it? All right, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete and then second Ephesians 6:10 to 14 finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Now I want you to first note the location of this struggle, this battle. And what I want you to note is that the location is both inside and outside the church. One of the the curses on the church today is how much preaching is focused on the evils outside the body of Christ. And I want you to notice that all through the New Testament you, you, you just see a constant emphasis on the war in the church. And it's amazing to me how much of the New Testament can be focused on dealing with the attack of Satan inside the church and how little of it in the preaching today. You know, it's always Walt Disney, it's Washington D.C., it's you know, the Democratic Party, it's on and on, the Supreme Court on and on and on and on. But the fact is the battle is inside the church, and I point you back to the fact that the Second Corinthians text, without any question, comes in the middle of the Apostle Paul dealing with the warfare within the church of Corinth, all right? He's defending himself, and that's the context for these, this discussion of the spiritual nature of the warfare. And so we have to see that fighting Inside the church, the war inside the church is the war that is referred to here. It's not simply outside the church, it's inside the church. Scripture does not make the sort of differentiation we want to make between fighting outside and inside the church. We're okay with an us-against-them posture between the church and the world. But when we think of fighting inside the church, we simply assume this fighting is caused by things like insensitivity and hurt feelings, right? People are just insecure, and if we all loved each other better, there would be no schism, there would be no division, there would be no heresy inside the church. We believe all fighting inside the church is trivial and easy to resolve, You simply rebuke the children, saying to them, stop your fighting, kids, and you're brothers and sisters, you're supposed to love one another. And, and that takes care of that, and dad goes back to the easy chair, and he's a wise father, he, he shut it down, and, and now all the kids are happy, right? But we've just read these two passages of scripture and clearly neither of them lends itself to our desire for peace at any cost within the body of Christ. The Christian's warfare is both outside and inside the church. In fact, the Christian's warfare is both outside and inside himself. Yes, we see the battle all around us outside the church, but we need to open our eyes to the constant and deadly battle inside the church. The warfare is spiritual. The coin sentimental nature of our age leaves us quivering in shame when we're at the center of conflict inside the church. Christ unites, doctrine divides, we tell ourselves, and thus inside the church, we do not fight well. We pull our punches. We stick the knife in from behind. We fight while speaking of our great love and admiration for brother so-and-so. And so so we are apologetic about our need to oppose brother so-and-so. We fight as if everything is a fraternal debate, an argument of relative insignificance, because after all, it's between brothers, and brothers always feel guilty about fighting, don't we? Well, make no mistake about it, the Apostle Paul was not falling all over himself, apologizing for battling the Judaizers. Nor was Jesus guilt-stricken over his declarations concerning the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Nor were Luther and Calvin simpering and cooing over the Pope and his scholars as they fought them. The man who simpered in cooed was Erasmus. He was the educated man. He was the academy. Meanwhile, Luther and Calvin were manly in their blows. Read them and recognize that you are reading the same courage, the same forthrightness in defending the faith in God's sheep as you see in the prophets of God presented in the pages of Scripture. You remember that Augustine said, Many sheep without and many wolves within. And the wolves within must be thrown out of the sheepfold or they must be killed. This is the reason the sheep love faithful shepherds, testifying that their rod and their staff comfort the sheep. And that their shepherd prepares a table before them in the presence of their enemies. And so again, the conflict spoken of in 2 Corinthians is the attack of super apostles on the Apostle Paul. The exhortation to battle, the description of the spiritual nature of the battle here in 2 Corinthians, is a part of the Apostle Paul's self-dessence inside the church. You say to me, well, what was the battle inside the church? I say, how long do you have? I mean, there's almost nothing that wasn't wrong with the Corinthian church, right? And that's why Calvin uses the Corinthian church as such an incredible example of how precious the church is and how we must not divide in the church, right? The Corinthian church was very messed up and there were battles everywhere. And the apostle Paul fought them. Now, if that's the where of the conflict, the second question is, what is the when of the conflict? If the battle is everywhere, must it be always? And this is, of course, the thing that, that, that drives us crazy about the Reformed Church today. Because it's just this endless repetition of, you know, laying garlands on the tombs of dead heroes. I met with a reform guy here in town uh, once about two years ago, and you know he wanted to get to know me. And so we sat down; we hadn't met. We had a good talk for about the first hour and a half, and I think I was discussing pastoral care and the work of elders in our church, and and, and I said um, something about uh, the opposition. But, of course, I didn't use the word opposition. I said the hatred of people in this community for this church. And it was really funny, because he was a very suave political man. And precisely at that point, I saw his whole body go rigid, and he leaned across the table at me. And he gave me this very pastoral understanding look, like, you know, a psychologist. And he said... Something like, yes, Tim, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Do you have any idea why that is? And I realized that the whole point of the meeting was that moment. I realized he'd had his ears burned, right? And so I said to him, well, I said, I wonder, can you think of any of your heroes in scripture or church history that have not been hated in their time? What are you going to say? There's absolutely no answer to that. The whole point of having heroes is so we don't have to be one. Right? And so, um, I'm happy to say that our relationship has gone on from there and is good, but listen people, Um, we must understand that the point of Calvin and Luther is not so that you and I can be innocuous. The church reformed, always reforming. And why is it that we think that we can claim the heritage of John the Baptist, our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Baxter, Edwards, and then somehow we rise to heaven on the clouds, on mists and vapor, and that we won't suffer. This is impossible. It's impossible for us to go through the Christian life without conflict. You cannot read the book of Acts without seeing that the main course God has for his people is suffering. That's why Jesus says he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And if you think a cross That suffering is optional with the cross? (laughs) You're deluded. You're Looney Tunes. The cross is suffering. Now we'll come back to that. Conflict is outside and inside the church, conflict is normative for the Christian. All times, all places, okay? Okay? This is not something extraordinary happening to you, all right? I I think sometimes that uh, we have bought Satan's lie that if we are very, very spiritual, really spiritual, and if we really love each other sincerely, that then there won't be conflict. And so if there is conflict, we, we just feel guilty, and so we try to remove conflict. But the fact is, I mean, come on, people, be honest. Your marriage, hey, eh? eh, hey, eh, eh, hey, hey, your marriage. Don't want to get personal. But what do you think of a marriage where there's no conflict? As my wife would say, it's dead. Conflict is the process that God uses to sanctify us on every level. And in marriage, you have to love your wife enough to, to fight with her you say, well, do you have to use the word fight? (laughs) And I say, okay, there I go again, you know. No, I, I just meant, like, cuddle. Didn't really mean fight. I meant cuddle, okay? Now, yes, of course, the battle has periods of greater and lesser intensity. Yes, yes. But make no mistake about it. There is no demilitarized zone for Christians, whether man or woman or boy or girl. Our Lord himself warned us in John 15, "'If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master.' What what does he say? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Huh? Are you persecuted? Come on. Are you persecuted? I know we're devious. And many of us are gonna respond to that by saying, well, you know, what do you think I should be, a masochist? You want me to go out? And I remember one man that we we met with him to talk to him and he said, well, I guess I'm gonna rob a bank on the way home. Well, he he, he thought maybe I, I need to cultivate conflict and I'll be a sinner and then I'll get persecuted. You know, he was, in other words, all right, I'll go out and punch a police officer in the face, and then I'll be persecuted. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the conflict being everywhere, being always, okay? And therefore, if you do not experience persecution, you have to ask yourself, what is wrong? That's the norm. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute some of you at some times, but that's not what he says. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. This conflict is everywhere, and it's always, because everywhere and always, we are in Christ. Christ. Everywhere and always, we are dead to Satan and alive in Christ. This is the reason we are at war. Let me put it this way. The battle is not your fault. It's Jesus' fault. And immediately you say, well, it's not a fault. And I, I, I'm saying, yeah, but I'm just saying it's a fault because I know that's how you think of it. But if you want to blame somebody, blame Jesus. Jesus. We suffer because of him. We suffer for him. In Luke 6, our Lord says, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Yesterday I was waiting for my brother at Starbucks on South Walnut. There were these two men that came and took the table next to me and I succeeded in not hearing anything they said for a long time. But for some reason, at some point, my ears perked up and they were like from here to the lectern. They were that close, right? And these two men filled with the type of conceit that only lives in a university community, proceeded to talk about the Gnostic Gospels and proceeded to despise the fathers of the church and talked about how the fathers of the church had willy-nilly thrown out the Gospel of and the Gospel of and, and it was just their sort of, and they didn't use the words, but the connotation was their male chauvinist piggishness. You know, that it caused them to not be willing to have women speak authority. And it just went on and on and on and on. And normally, I would actually say something. You'll all be very pleased to know, I kept my mouth shut yesterday. (laughs) I just looked at those two men. And it was absolutely certain to me that this was a case of pearls before swine. The conceit was mind-boggling. And it just went from subject to subject. They were absolutely certain that they were the state of, state of art about absolutely everything they held forth on. Well, the battle is not our fault. It is Christ's fault. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you. I wasn't hated or ostracized or insulted or scorned, but boy, was I hated and ostracized and scorned. They just didn't know the one that they were hating and ostracizing and scorning was right next to them. But it wasn't me. Our Lord says, for the sake of the Son of Man. And so Mary Lee's right. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's your Lord. So how much do you love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? Jesus. Come on. You think about how quick men are to defend their wives, how quick children are to defend their mother, their father, their grandparents. When have you ever defended Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? When his name is taken in vain, when you have your uh, flighty evangelical friend, you know, going on and on about the Spirit leading them and how how God has told them and all this stuff, does it anger you? Now, I know it sometimes angers us when we're in a movie and somebody says, Jesus Christ, right? But, you know, that's not nearly as common in your life as spiritual people banding around the name of God for things that are pure wickedness. How much do you love Jesus Christ? How much do you identify with him? The battle is everywhere, the battle is always, and the battle is up close and personal. It's right here, right now, it's not out there, it's here, okay? Notice in verse 12 in Ephesians, it says, for our struggle, it is our struggle. And the Apostle Paul includes himself, yes, but the Apostle Paul, as he includes himself, is including you. He's including me. It's our struggle. Now, the word translated struggle in the NASB is better put by the King James Version. There we read, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. A few years ago, I went to one of my... uh, my nephew Nathan's uh, wrestling matches. And I want to tell you something. Wrestling is very personal and intimate. <laughs> it is a contact sport. <laughs> it's like. Now, think about this. If you're in a battle and and, 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 and you're being addressed as part of a regiment, okay? If you're in a battle and you're being addressed as part of a platoon, if you're in a battle and you're being addressed as a member of a squad, the wonderful thing is that the bullets, when you come under fire, the bullets might actually be aimed at somebody else, right? When you're wrestling? No. It's hand-to-hand combat there's absolutely no question that you are the one that Satan is is focusing on. We wrestle. Okay? It is one-on-one. It is personal. You cannot escape the conflict. You notice the theme today. You can't escape the conflict. You can lie to yourself about it. You, You can have this attitude like, well, I'm over here and I'm for peace, but the elders in the church are over here and they're for war. You are Satan's mark. You are the one that he is focusing on, okay? You can't escape the conflict. It is man-to-man combat. Every one of us fights, every one of us wrestles. By virtue of our confession of faith in Jesus Christ, every one of us has signed up to be a spiritual grunt. That's what they called the Marines on the front lines. Now, is this overly dramatic? When Scripture speaks of contending and wrestling and weapons and warfare and swords, it can sound like a little boy playing with tin soldiers or G.I. Joes. Are these words simply figures of speech and are things really that serious? Yes, things really are that serious. The conflict of the gospel life can seem surreal in our day when the suffering of American Christians seems largely to be emotional or psychological. There is the occasional interpersonal alienation at work or in our extended families, but that hardly seems worthy of a Purple Heart. Nor of this biblically intense language speaking of principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Make no mistake about it, though, this conflict is more real than the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. It is more real than the battles between Muslims and the Christians in South Sudan. Man-to-man spiritual battle is not less real than man-to-man flesh-and-blood battle. Man to man spiritual battle is more real. It's more serious. It's more consequential because eternity is at stake. As Charles Hodge puts it, okay, if you don't know who Charles Hodge is, Princeton theologian. In other words, reformed. In other words, preservation, perseverance of the saints. But listen to what Hodge says here. Hodge says, quote, true believers, he's speaking of this. Passage: true believers are often grievously wounded, and, and we don't have any problem with that because you've been wounded and I'm wounded, and, 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 and I'll show you my scars if you show me yours, right? There's no big risk to us saying, yeah, I've been wounded in the battle, right? But listen to him. He says, true believers are often grievously wounded and multitudes of reputed believers entirely succumb. If you believe that there is a time, if you believe that there is a place, if you believe that you can escape the conflict, if you believe that you can avoid man-to-man, hand-to-hand combat, if you believe that there is such a thing as a DMZ, a demilitarized zone in the Christian life, you will die. Satan is no fool. And if he can simply get you to cop out of the battle, and to live a life of ease. He doesn't have to do anything else. He doesn't have to bring your wife against you, or your children, or your parents. He doesn't have to seduce you into adultery. He doesn't have to put you in prison. All he has to do is cause you to believe that you can escape the conflict. That by time, by place, or by some demilitarized zone. All right? And so how do we prepare for and fight in this conflict? Well, first, we must hammer it into our heads that we can never stand on our own. The Apostle Paul commands us, finally, be strong what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because we feel this conflict most acutely inside our own breast, within our own mind and heart, does this mean we are sufficient for it? By grace we are saved through faith, and by faith we are sanctified, which is to say, by grace we stand, which is to say, God alone is our Savior in perseverance as much as in regeneration. As the Apostle Paul asked the Galatians, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We can't stand except in the strength of God. In this conflict, we must not rely on our own strength, but the power of the Holy Spirit. All of our armor, all of our weapons are of God. It is the breastplate of righteousness. God's righteousness, not ours. It is the sword of the Spirit. It's not our sword. Considering the great faith we reforms seem to have in our intellectual and scholarly abilities, it is not our own slingshot or pea-shooter. This conflict, this war, is not between the good and evil parts of our nature. It's not between logic and fallacies. It is a spiritual warfare against principalities and powers. The Apostle Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We must not be so foolish as to try to win this battle with guns and knives, destroyers and fighter jets and nuclear warheads. Psalm 20 verses 6 to 8, now I know the Lord saves his anointed, he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright." Okay? Okay? So we're not trusting in horses and chariots, right? It just feels very um, very pious really, to realize that I don't trust in horses and chariots, right? Maybe aircraft carriers. But listen, as we must not trust in horses and chariots, we must not trust in scholarship and reason and logic. Now, you're following the parable here. In 1 Corinthians we read, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but, adversative there, right? But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were many of you who were professors, This is not what it says. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many PhDs, but that's not what it says. It says not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Now listen, people we must translate that into Bloomington, okay? We must see that God is not dependent upon having important women and men in a church. He doesn't need our PhDs, does he? Come on, Chris. He doesn't need your PhD. He doesn't need your alma mater, right? Chris, right? Right, it's a good one. As a matter of fact, can't we put your picture up on the front of our webpage? You and Shelley, both of you and your alma maters. And then maybe we get a lot of professors to come here. And then maybe the investment counselors, you know, and the real estate agents, and maybe the, the, the vice president for research. People, when scripture says not many okay, wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble, you can't just ditz brain over the top of that and not translate it. Who are the wise? Who are the noble of our community? Who are they? And then we look around and we say, you know, it's true. It's true. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, we read, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In 1 Corinthians three, eighteen and 19, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish. Listen, Dear brothers and sisters, you know how the Apostle Paul, when he writes the epistles, will will single out names for commendation and other names for rebuke? You all know he does that, right? I have sat here, and I have preached, and I have watched Christopher over the past few months become foolish in the eyes of the world and become wise. I have watched him hungry and thirsting after righteousness, You can see it any week in the preaching of God's word, anywhere it's done. You can see men turning from the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. And it is terminal. (laughs) There's no going back. It's mind-blowing. If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, behold, all things have become new. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who, any of you know what comes next? Any? Any? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, thank you, Daniel. He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Don't you love God? Don't you love it that God is no respecter of persons? Don't you love it that if you try to be crafty, he'll catch you? Don't you want to be caught? Calvin hammered home again and again and again in his lifetime that the Sorbonists, the scholars like Erasmus, whose hope was in the academy and scholarship, were impotent. That they trusted in man's wisdom and therefore knew nothing of the wisdom of God. Now, this doesn't mean that we're anti-intellectuals. Don't put words in my mouth. I'm telling you what God says about the wisdom of man. Our defense depends not on the wisdom of man, the pride of man, the riches of man, the power of man. It doesn't depend on logic and reason of man. It depends on the wisdom of God. Our weapons are not human or natural, but they are divine. They are from God. We are commanded to be strong, not in ourselves, but in God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, I want want to talk about one last thing. And that is, what is to be our response when we're caught up in the conflict and when we suffer? It's just impossible to be in the conflict without taking wounds, right? And, you know, you 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 can talk about what the wounds are, Uh, The Apostle Paul has a long list of the wounds he suffered in the conflict, right? Shipwrecked, left for dead, starved, and certainly hated, right? When we do suffer, what is to be our response? That's right. Our response is to be joy. It's to be joy listen to the Lord he says blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man be glad in that day do you remember what comes next huh leap leap for joy leap for behold your reward is great in heaven for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets you should be so happy. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when men speak well of you, when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So if we go to the book of Acts and we see how the apostles responded when they were persecuted, for instance, you remember Gamaliel's advice in Acts 5, where Peter and the other apostles are in prison, and we read in Acts 5, verses 40 to 42, they, the Jewish leaders, took Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles, which was Peter and the other apostles, in, they flogged them And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. And then we read this. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so it says that they went from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So you're 60, right? I know you're not, but I am. And at the age of 60, you have most of your life to look back on. And when you look back on your life, And you consider, on the one hand, those times when you have refused to suffer, those times when you have chosen the broad and wide and well-traveled path, and those times when you have chosen to suffer, or when you have, you know, I don't think anybody ever chooses to suffer. I think what you end up doing is you end up Suppressing, sti- remember, Archie? Stifle it, right? You stifle your 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 visceral desire to avoid suffering. That's about as good as we ever get, right? And so, stifling your desire not to suffer, you suffer. And when you suffer for Christ, it is impossible for you not to rejoice. It really is. It's impossible for you not to rejoice. It's impossible for you not to rejoice because you're counted worthy of the name of Jesus. (laughs) Right? In other words, the Christian life by God's decree is a life where joy always, always comes to us in the form of a cross. You know, I look at the decisions that you make in elders' boards, and most of you have the privilege of never having to be there. But in an elders' board, meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, there's nothing more sophisticated going on than the decision whether or not to suffer you know? And when the elders make a decision that they are going to take up their cross and follow Christ, those of you in this church know that that's a decision, that you also will take up your cross and follow Christ. They're your head, right? And when they decide that they're going to suffer, almost always that means that the members of the congregation are going to suffer. Now, in the long term, they will protect you, but remember... Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and that's as true for your shepherds and the elders' board as it is for Jesus. And so when they use the rod and staff, it's painful, but it's part of the process of preparing a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And listen, I can just testify to you, whether it's my parents, it's my in-laws, it's my own family, whether it's the elders' board, it's other pastors, when we choose to die, it's always joy, it's difficult, it is painful, but my dad used to say all the time, God is no man's debtor. God is no man's debtor. What can you give to him that he is not a good steward of, your reputation, your comfort, Your home, and what about your life? So this is our battle. And I want to encourage all of you, um, and I want you to encourage me. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to encourage me. I want you to demand of me that we do not flee the cross, that we do not flee the conflict, Remember last week I told you that the Apostle Paul was always saying finally and then going on for half the book? I actually have one second finally. If you think that you can simply be defensive in your battle and not offensive, you're an idiot. If you're seduced into simply trying to protect yourself and not exercising the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you will die. You must be on the offensive and the power of the Holy Spirit to win this battle. And the best text to show you this is in Ephesians, where it says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And that's where every evangelical stops. <laughs> you know, okay, I won't have anything to do. Is that enough? And then it says, but rather expose them. You must wield the sword of the Spirit. Okay? You must. And what joy. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.